Thank you, Nathan and Jarena. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I remember hearing a fellow preach one time probably 20 years ago. He called it Chronicles. Uh, so if you want to call it Chronicles, you can. But 2 Chronicles chapter 33. What a great crowd. We had a good turnout the first service and a good turnout uh, this service as well. I hope your hearts are open really to what God wants for you. This is Father's Day and I'll be speaking to fathers, but uh, you know, really more importantly, I don't want to just just uh, you know, take a, a crowd like this and, and uh, compress it to just a small group of people. I want to try to speak to everyone here. And so I think the message this morning, you know, if we're willing to really listen, really listen to uh, not only what the passage says, but what God wants to say to your heart, then uh, if we're willing to apply it as well, then I, I think God can do some great things today. So Second Chronicles chapter 33 is where we're going to be. Yeah, this is Olympics year, and I love the Olympics. Whenever I was a kid, man, I'm telling you, I, I think my, like most little kids, I had all these dreams of... Um, you know, going to the Olympics and winning a medal, um, not in fencing or curling, uh, you know, those kind of interesting uh, uh, events there, but just had all these dreams, you know, like every little kid would about the Olympics. It only comes four times a year, and the Summer Olympics to me are just, just the best. You know, so many great stories that come out of that. seems like every year you hear new stories of of people that have not only excelled in, in sports, uh, but they've excelled in other areas of life as well. The Olympics just bring all those to the forefront. Well, 20 years ago, 1992, uh, the Olympics were held in Barcelona, Spain. And perhaps the greatest story that came out of those Olympics came not from a person who won a medal, but it came from a man by the name of Derek Redman. Derek Redman was a sprinter. He was a quarter miler in the 400 meters, one time around the track, one-fourth of a mile. The best in the world run it typically in the mid-40s, 40 seconds, you know, the mid-40s. Well, Derek Redmond that year, 1992, he had set the British record twice already. Uh, he had uh, run a personal best of 44.5 in the 400 meters, and when the 92 Olympics came, and he was ready, he had missed the previous Olympics because of an injury, and so by the time 92 rolled around, I mean, his heart was hungry. He had, had been driven now for four years, not just to show up and compete, but to go home with a medal. Well, whenever he came to that particular Olympics, he'd made it through the heats, he'd come to the, uh, come to the semifinal round. The top four out of his race would advance to the finals. And so it would pretty much be a given because of the way he was running that he would advance to the finals, have a real good shot of winning a medal, very possibly taking home a gold for his country. Settled into the blocks that particular day in those 92 Olympics in Barcelona, and when he settled in, he felt good. The gun went off, he took off, got a great start, and after the first turn, he had already gained the lead. He was um, moving quickly through his race. He was at a good place. He felt well. And then he said that he heard what sounded like a gunshot. The problem was it wasn't a gunshot. It was, it was his hamstring, his right hamstring he had torn. And as he crumpled to the track that day and watching the rest of those that were running that semifinal heat continue on without him, not only was it a race that had ended, but for him it was pretty much his dreams of winning a gold medal or any medal for that matter. An amazing thing happened as he laid there on that track, he regained his composure. He began to jump up to, to one foot, and with his right leg kind of dangling back behind him, he began to hop. Most of the people in attendance that day, 65,000 strong, figured he was going to make his way across the remaining outer lanes off the track and on to get treatment, but that's not what he was doing. He stayed in his lane, and he continued down that track. He was determined that even though he wasn't going to win, he was at least going to finish. Well, there was a gentleman up in the stands that day who was looking down and watching. It was his father. And as soon as Derek hit the track, his father knew what had happened. And he began to fight past the people in the aisles and through the seats. And he made his way down to the, to the front row of that, uh, of that uh, spectator area. And he jumped over the wall. He didn't have any credentials. He was wearing a hat that said, just do it. Remember that Nike slogan? 
And he had a shirt on that said, have you hugged your foot today? <laughs> I, guess, I guess if he knew he was going to be a worldwide sensation, he would dress a little differently, I suppose. But he jumped that wall, and he pushed past the security personnel that on the track, you can watch the YouTube video, and they're actually running to him to keep him away. And he pushes right past him, this dad. And he runs to his son's side. And he says, son, you don't have to do this. By then, he had covered another 100 meters himself. And he said, you, you, you can quit. You've accomplished much already. And he said, no, Dad, I'm not going to quit. I've got to finish. And his father said, well, then, if you're going to finish, we're going to finish together. And as they made their way around the remaining 150 meters or so of that track, they crossed the finish line. And just as they got to the line, his dad let go, and Derek Redmond finished that race the way he set out to. He didn't win a medal, but to 65,000 people watching and to a worldwide audience, I can tell you there was one who won that race that nobody expected. Have you ever fallen? I mean, really, really fallen. Not on your face, not tripped and fall. I mean, have you fallen in your life before? Maybe there's a relationship you look back on and you think, you know, if I could hit the reset button and if I could do that one over again, it failed and it crumbled and I, I, would, I would do things differently there. Maybe you look back at a series of choices in your life. Maybe it was a night or a weekend or a week or a month or maybe a period of years and you look back and you, you see that segment for whatever length it was and you think, man, that was a time in my life, that little slice where I had just really, really fallen in my life on my face. Maybe for you it was an addiction. Maybe for you it was some sin that, that carried great, great consequences. Maybe it was something that still today you think about, that if you could go back and just do it over again, it, it, you would just make sure that you took the steps to keep from having fallen the way that you did. But when you think about those times, and all of us have fallen, for some it may be dramatic, others you may have fallen as a spouse or as a parent or some other area of your life, you just you look and you think, I could do so much better. You know, I, I could have over the series of my life, I could have just gone a different course had I not gotten off track had I not fallen down well the question is how do we move through those times because we all have them how do we move through those to where we can be victorious are we expected to just pick up those pieces best we can kind of brush ourselves off kind of regather our senses and get everything collected and pulled together and then just kind of chart a new path is that what we're supposed to do or is there another way is there is there a better way well, I want to present to you this morning that there is a better way, and we're going to read an example of it, Exhibit A in Second Chronicles chapter 33. The people of Judah were God's people. In 2 Chronicles 33, that's who we're dealing with. It's the people of Judah. God had chosen them. You had Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Without going into all the history, the people of Judah were God's chosen people. They had once walked with God, but in 2 Chronicles 33, they weren't walking with him anymore, and it was largely due to one person. A man by the name of Manasseh took over as king of Judah at just 12 years of age. Now, you remember what life was like, don't you, when you were 12 years old, 6th grade or so? Now, think about what it was like for you when you were at that age. Uh, did you have the wisdom? Did you have the maturity? Did you have the knowledge that was needed to, to rule a, a whole entire country? Yeah, probably not. I, I shudder to think what it would have been like had I led a country at 12 years old, much less at 46 but Manasseh was 12 years old when he took over the reins of leading the people of Judah. I mean, he was the king. Now, granted, for 10 years, he served alongside of his father, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king. He brought reform. He'd made changes in the, in, in, in the land. He was a great, great king, and everybody knew it. Manasseh served with him for 10 years as co, in a co-reigning type of a position. Around the age of 22, Manasseh took over. 
I mean, the boat was his. I mean, it was just he, he alone right there steering the whole ship of the people of Judah. Well, Manasseh went a different direction from his father. In fact, whenever the dust would settle, Manasseh would be known as the most wicked, worst king that the people of Judah would ever had, and they had their fair share of them. Manasseh would almost run that ship aground, and the nation would go far from God simply because of Manasseh's leadership. And I want us to begin in verse 1, and we're going to take a moment to read through this, uh, these first 10 verses and just to get a sense of this man Manasseh as we look at a message that talks about how it is never too late. Manasseh, we read of in chapter 33, verse 1. It says, was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Let me stop there for just a second. When Manasseh took over, we have to remember that he took over people of Judah. Now they had gone in years before and taken over what was called the promised land, the people of Israel. And whenever they had gone in, they had to, to basically fight for that land. And they dispossessed nations, nationalities that were living in that land who did not know God, didn't honor God, didn't worship God. In fact, they were, those people worshiped uh, false deities. They, they were involved in, in uh, the worship of false gods. And so Manasseh, when he takes over, verse 2 says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Even in comparison to the nations that didn't even know God, he did evil. Verse 3, it says, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. Now, let me just stop there for, for just a second. When we read of the high places, it's exactly what, like what it says. Those were, those were hills, usually high hills that had been cleared out by people. And the purpose of those high places was for the worship of false deities. Now, the pagan nations would build these high places. They'd clear out these areas, and they would have... Um, they would have idols that would be placed up there, but they would engage uh, in basically false worship. They would, in, they would worship false gods. They'd burn incense and they'd pray prayers to these false gods. They would engage in, in immorality there under the guise of religion. Just a, a, a godless event that would take place there. And what Manasseh does is that even though his father had torn those places down, Manasseh builds them back up again so that false religion can be engaged in as a result. Uh, continue with me, verse 3. It says, he also erected altars for the Baals, and he made Asherim, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Uh, those altars that it talks about is uh, basically a reflection that, that what Manasseh did was he instituted as the national religion, he instituted the worship of false gods. Baal was believed to be the god of fertility. Uh, Asherah was believed to be the, the goddess of fertility. Uh, again, immorality was often associated with the worship of those false gods. And Manasseh chose to institute, as the national religion for crying out loud, of all the people of Judah, God's people, he chose to institute false worship as their national religion. Look at what it says. Jump down to verse 4. It says, He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. And so he took these altars, and even going from the high places, he went down to the very temple of God, and he placed altars there to the sun, to the moon, to the stars, and he led the people of God, even in the very house of God, to engage in worship of those things that were not God. Look at what it says in verse 6. It gets worse. It says, He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. If you're reading through the book of Second Chronicles, you might come to that phrase, pass through the fire, and, and not really think much of it, and just kind of move on. 
It'd be another phrase that didn't seem to really make sense, and I don't know what that means, but I don't have time to camp out there. I'm just going to keep reading. Well, what that means when it says he made his sons to pass through the fire is it meant that he offered them as sacrifices to these false gods. You see, the pagan nationalities would worship a god called Molech. And as was customary, they would build a bronze statue to this false god. And the inside of that bronze statue would be hollowed out. At the bottom, at the base of that statue, they would put wood and they would build a fire. And they would heat that fire up to incredible intensity. And they would either A, place the child inside that statue as a sacrifice to that false god. Or many theologians say that those statues were often built with the hands of that false god extended outward. And the child would be placed in those fiery burning hot hands. And the pounding of the drum beats were designed to drown out the cries of those children. And Manasseh, who ruled the most godly nation on earth, sent his own sons through that fire, offering them as sacrifices to a God that didn't even exist. Look at what it says as we read further. Look down in, a, look down in verse 6 further. It says he also practiced witchcraft. He used divination, he practiced sorcery, and he dealt with mediums and spiritists, and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. You see, it wasn't enough for Manasseh to involve himself in the worship of these false gods, but he also got involved in, in things of, of the enemy, of the devil himself as well, involving himself in sorcery and witchcraft, the occult, and the list goes on and on. Verse 7, he put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I've put my name forever. Look down in verse 9. It says, Thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So here's where, what a summary that is. It got so bad that when you looked at those pagan nations that didn't know God, and they were doing all these just atrocious things under the name of religion, and they're worshiping false gods, and they're engaged in immorality under the guise of religion, and they're offering children to be sacrificed to gods that didn't even exist. The Bible says that Manasseh came in, and he did worse than even the nations that didn't even know God. And he had a father that laid a godly heritage. He had a father that, 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 that led and reformed to the people of Judah. He had a father that honored God and lived for God. And yet Manasseh comes along and he completely outdoes any of the wickedness in even the pagan nations around him. Verse 10 says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh, to his people, but they paid no attention. Well, he would finally go so far to where he would cross the line to where God would finally get his attention. And God would get his attention in dramatic fashion. The Assyrians and the Babylonians in that day were fighting for world power. And to some degree, in a sense, they, they, they shared uh, leadership of the world at that point. The Babylonians would eventually take over. But the Bible tells us that the Assyrians would sweep in and they would begin to uh, ultimately take captive this king, Manasseh. They would take him by hook and by chain. More than likely, it was, it was customary by the Assyrians. They'd put a hook through his nose. Now, that's a good thought, isn't it? They'd put a hook literally through his nose. I mean, you're going to go where you're led when you've got a hook through your nose. And they would lead him by chain all the way to the land of Babylon. He was now captive. This king that would reign for 55 years had been painted a picture of godliness by his father, had led this nation into ab absolute uh, uh, idolatry. 
And the time would come when he would ultimately be dealt with. Let me ask a question. This is where it gets a little bit tough. Would it be worth it for Manasseh to have to deal with captivity if it meant that he came to God as a result? Would it be worth it for God to rattle your cage? And would it be worth it for God to allow your world to be turned upside down if it meant that future disaster would be averted, would be avoided? And if it meant that ultimately you'd be brought back to God where you'd be greatly blessed and His favor would far surpass any pain that you experienced? Is it worth it when God disciplines us and deals with us in our disobedience? Is it worth it if in the end result, when everything settles, if, we've, if we're better off as a result? The answer is absolutely. And that's what God would do here. He would allow these Assyrians to sweep in. They would take, uh, uh, take Manasseh to uh, Babylon. Look at what it says. Pick up in verse 12. And here's what happens as a result. It says that when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, God was moved by his entreaty, and he heard his supplication, and he brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. And Manasseh knew then that the Lord was God. God dealt with him where he was, and he dealt with him severely. It was what was required to get his attention. And yet whenever Manasseh sensed that God was at work, when he finally hit bottom, the Bible tells us that he repented, he turned from his sin, from himself, and to God. And God ultimately restored his leadership there in that nation. Just an amazing picture of what it means for a person to ultimately wander so far from God and then for God ultimately to do a work in their life. So what does it mean to repent? If that's what Manasseh did, and if that's what put this whole thing into motion for him being made right with God, what does it mean to repent? It means to turn from and to turn to. It means to turn from our sin and to turn to God, specifically through Christ. It means to turn from even ourselves and to turn to God. Because here's where a lot of us miss it, is that repentance is not just doing better. Repentance is not just deciding, hey, I'm going to clean things up. You know, that's it. God's working my life. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to, I'm going to do better. I'm, going to, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm not going to cuss anymore. I'm not going to uh, uh, be, a, uh, uh, be a liar anymore. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to start doing that. That is a part of repentance. But repentance is turning more from, from what we do to, to who we, from who we we are. It is a change of character. It's, it's a decision that I am not going to be that anymore. Not only am I not going to lie anymore, I'm not going to be a liar. I'm going to be one who has integrity. Not only that I'm not going to steal anymore, I'm not going to be a thief. I'm going to be a person who is honest with the way I do things. I'm not going to be a person who, uh, who runs around on my spouse anymore. Uh, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm going to stop doing that, but I'm also going to be faithful in who I am. It's a change from what we're doing, but it's also a change from who we are. That's what repentance is. That's what Manasseh did. And God got his attention, and he turned from what he was doing, but he turned from who he was, and he turned wholeheartedly, ultimately, to the Lord. And there's a principle there that I want us to understand because this man had led his nation to idolatry. They would be disciplined largely because of what he did. And yet there's a principle, and the principle is this, that it's never too late to run well and to finish strong. It's never too late for us to run well and for us to finish strong. And what, why is that important? Why is Manasseh's story so important? Even though you may not be familiar with it, why is it important? Because I would be willing to say that for a significant number of people here, you look back over the course of your life and you think, man, if I would have only known then what I know today, life would have been so much better. 
If I'd have only known what it meant to walk according to God's word and the truth that's there, if I'd have only applied it to my life in my 20s and my 30s and my 40s, man, I wouldn't be suffering some of the consequences that I suffer today. If I'd have only known back then what it meant to be a person who honored God with their life, my life would have been so much different. And there's a tendency for us to begin to almost dig a pit and to crawl into it and to beat ourselves to death over the past, whereas God wants us to, to, uh, to, to trust the past to Him, to His forgiveness, to pick up those pieces in His strength, and to move forward. Why? Because it's never too late for us to run well and for us to finish strong. God shows us through the life of Manasseh that this man who had blown it in tremendous fashion, he had already lost his children to false gods. He had already sacrificed them. They would not be reclaimed. They were never going to come back. And yet God shows us that even for him, it's never too late for us to choose that starting today, I'm going to run well. (laughs) I'm going to finish strong. And it starts whenever we turn from where we are and who we are. And we turn by faith to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Manasseh, is exhibit A. Let me, let me give you a caution. Let me, just, let me just caution you that that kind of a change isn't going to come in your strength. It's not going to come when you decide solely that I'm going to turn. It's going to come when you surrender. See, it's not self-help. It's, it's surrender. It's not reformation. I'm going to reform my life. It's transformation. It's God, I'm yours. Do with me what only you can do. That's what Manasseh did, and that's why his life was restored. That's why his his leadership was restored. That's why his relationship with God was restored, was because of that specific decision. Flip over with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12, towards the close of of your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, and I want you to see something here. Last passage we're going to turn to. Hebrews chapter 12. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews from a, from a, uh, from a human perspective. The, the book of Hebrews doesn't tell us who its author was. But we do know God wrote it, and that, that's really what matters most, is that God penned the words to this book through some human author, but it was God who wrote it. And so it's completely true. We can bank on it. But if you jump down to Hebrews chapter 12, these first three verses really paint for us a picture of how it is that we choose to run well and how it is that we finish strong. Look at what it says beginning in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. See, there is a picture there that there is a part for us to play. There is something that we do. And that is a part of repentance that we do turn. The Bible says that whatever it is that encumbers us, whatever it is that slows us down, whatever it is that entangles us, just like any mountain climber is going to climb with the bare essentials, just as any sprinter is going to race with the bare essentials. He says in the same way in the Christian life, if you're going to walk with God, you've got to throw off those things that entangle you and throw off the sin that encumbers you. He says to throw it off. And then what does he say at the end of verse 1? He says, and let us run the race with perseverance. Look at what it says. Hebrews chapter 12, end of verse 1. He says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Those are things that we choose to do. Lord, today I drive the stake in the ground. I'm going to run well starting today. I can't change the past. I can't change broken relationships. I can't change consequences. But starting today, I'm going to run well with you. And I'm going to run a race that honors you. And I'm going to live my life in a way that gives you great glory. And then verse 2 tells us how we do that. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. You see, we take steps to walk with God, but it is God who changes lives because he is the author 
He is the perfecter of faith and of the faithful. And so he says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then I love verse 3 because it's, it's a verse written to those who struggle. He says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And so you say, Brooks, I, you know, I'm Manasseh. <laughs> now, I don't have any high places built, but I've worshipped a lot of things other than God in my life. And I, I'm him. 2,600 years later. What do I do to run well? You turn from that which you've done. You turn from that who you've been. And you fix your eyes on Christ in repentance and faith. And as you do that, it's he, verse 3 tells us, who gives us the strength to persevere and to run and to run and to run over the obstacles, through the difficulties in a way that brings him honor, brings him glory, listen to this, and brings us fulfillment. You know, after that race in 92, Derek Redmond would begin to get messages from people all over the world. They had a message system set up there at the Olympic Complex in Barcelona, and he began to get messages from people as well that were even competing during those Olympics. One message from a Canadian that he never had even met struck a chord with him. Listen to what it said. It said, long after the names of the medalists have faded from our minds, you'll be remembered for having finished, for having tried so hard, for having a father to demonstrate the strength of his love for his son. He goes on to say, and I thank you, and I'll always remember your race, and I will always remember you, the purest, most courageous example of grit and determination that I have ever seen. Listen, whether you're a dad, whether you're a mom, whether you're married, whether you're single, none of that even matters. When you look over the course of your life and you see those Manasseh moments where you wished you could take those back and you can't undo the past, just remember that he is an example that it is never too late to run well and to finish strong. It's never too late to write that letter to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It's never too late to extend that hand of reconciliation to one with whom you've had a broken relationship. It's never too late to take steps to say, I can't change the past, but today I'm a different person. And starting today, I'll show that through the life I live. It's never too late. David and Svea Flood were just a young couple. It was 1921. And they had decided to be missionaries. They left literally everything they knew. They had a two-year little boy, two-year-old little boy, David Jr. And as they left their homes and everything they knew in Sweden, they and another couple set out for the continent of Africa to become missionaries in what most would call today the area of Zaire. They would leave their possessions, they'd leave their homeland, they would leave their families, and they would leave their friends. And they would take off to this nation just simply to tell people about Christ. They had great home, uh, hopes, they had great dreams, they, they had, I'm sure, visions of how they were going to share the gospel with the people of that, of that particular area, and perhaps even the whole country would be changed. They had nothing but hopes as they set out from Sweden to that, to that nation. Didn't even know exactly where they were going, it was just they as a family, the floods, and, and then another missionary couple, and as they arrived there on the continent of Africa, and they made their way towards that nation that we today know as Zaire, they, they began to cut their way literally with machetes, it was the early 1900s, as they made their way through the interior of that country, 
they came to an area that had been cleared out, and there was a group of, of tribes people there. And as they came up to them to introduce themselves and to try to begin to build a relationship with them, they immediately were turned away. The tribesman, the leader of that group said, we can't allow you here on this property. You are white people and the gods will be angry if we allow you to take residence here. And they turned them away. There was only one little boy, history tells us, a little child that was about 12 years old. And it was with that little boy who fed them food that Savannah shared the gospel, and he responded. He gave his life to Christ. They moved on out of that area, and these two missionary families ultimately created for themselves a home, and they cleared out an area of land. They built for themselves a very simple home, and it was there that they planted. It wasn't long before the other missionary couple left and went back, went back to the missions outpost 100 miles away. But David Flood would have nothing of it. God's led me here, he said. God has brought our family here, just the three of us, so that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, soon enough, as time passed, they began to grow ill. They both contracted malaria, malnutrition, loneliness, disappointment set in. After all, they'd only shared the gospel with one person who responded, and that was just a little boy. They found out that Savannah was expecting. Time came for her to give birth, and she did to a little girl this time. They named her Ina. She was a beautiful little girl, but her mom, Savannah, wasn't doing well just a few days after delivering her she passed away 27 years old she left her home she left her friends she left everything she knew and her husband david would now build for her a crude wooden casket and he would take the lifeless body of his wife and he'd place her in that casket he'd dig a hole by his own hands and he would bury her there in the ground in zaire almost immediately his heart grew bitter Almost immediately, he began to question God. God had ruined his life, he believed. He gathered up his two kids, his newborn and his little boy, David Jr., and he made his way to that missions outpost. And when he got there, he met that family that they had once served with. And he said, I'm done. I'm heading back home to Sweden. I'm taking my little boy with me, but I'm leaving this girl, Ina, for you to raise. And he left, and he went back home again. That missions couple would raise her, and they soon would pass away themselves handing her over to yet another, a third family to raise her. That family would one day take furlough to the U.S. Years later, their little girl, Ina, had been given a new name. Her name was Aggie. She would grow up learning the Swahili language. She'd make friends there in that nation. But whenever their family would move to the States, she would go with them. She'd grow into adulthood. She'd marry a college president, and she would have a life of her own, never hearing from her father again. She received in the mail, ironically, a magazine. And in that magazine, there was an article that talked about ministry. It was an evangelism magazine. And she received it, and it had a picture of or an article about ministry there in Zaire. And in that article was a picture. And in that picture was a crude, concrete headstone with a cross that was engra en engraved into it. And the name Svea Flood it was her mom. She hadn't heard from her father for over 40 years. Every letter she had written had come back unreturned. Didn't even know exactly where he was. Little did she know he had gone on to remarry, had five more kids of his own, but he had abandoned God completely. When she saw that article, she began to, to, uh, to put into motion a trip with she and her, her husband to Sweden to find her dad. On their way there, the miraculous would happen. They'd be in London and she would meet up with a pastor, an African pastor that was talking about God's work in the nation of Zaire. After the service was over, she went up to meet him. And I want you, want you to listen as I read just an excerpt of this article 
that details her life and her ministry. Listen to what it says. It says her heart leaped as she met this African evangelist. And after the meeting, she approached the preacher and she asked him, Did you ever know the missionaries David and Savea Flood? He answered, Yes, Savea Flood led me to the Lord when I was just a boy. See, that was the one convert that her father had led to Christ. He said, They had a baby girl, but I never knew what happened to her. And Aggie exclaimed, I'm the girl. When the preacher heard this, he clasped her hands, he hugged her, and he wept with joy. She could hardly believe that this man was the little boy convert her mother had ministered to. He had grown up to be a missionary evangelist to his own country, which now included 110,000 Christians, 32 mission stations, several Bible schools, and a 120-bed hospital. More determined than ever, she set out into the interior. Uh, she, She began to make her way, not from London, but ultimately to Sweden to find her dad. When she got there, she would find him. Listen to what it says. Inside the house where he was living, liquor bottles lay everywhere. Lying on a cot in the corner was her father, one-time missionary, David Flood. He was now 73 years old, suffering from diabetes. He was an alcoholic, had had a stroke. Cataracts covered both of his eyes. Aggie fell to his side, crying, Dad, I'm your little girl, the one you left in Africa. And the old man turned and he looked at her. Tears formed in his eyes, and he said, I never meant to give you away. I just couldn't handle you both. She answered, that's okay, Daddy. God took care of me. And at that, her father's face darkened. God didn't take care of you, he raged. He ruined our whole family. He led us to Africa and betrayed us. Nothing ever came of our time there. It was a waste of our lives. And then she told him about the black preacher she'd met in London, how the country had been evangelized through him. It's all true, Daddy, she said. Everybody knows about that little boy. The story has been in all the papers. Suddenly the Holy Spirit fell on David Flood and he broke. Tears of sorrow and repentance flowed down his face. And God restored him. It would be just a few weeks later after that. That David Flood would pass away. He was a man with a life lived in rebellion against God. But on either end was faithfulness. Faithfulness to God as a missionary. Faithfulness to God in repentance. Having come home with a lot of wreckage in between. You know, it's three stories, isn't it? Three stories that say the same thing. Whether a British sprinter who falls and a father helps him up. Whether it's a missionary who suffers, wanders and comes home. Or whether it's a king named Manasseh who leads a whole nation to pagan idolatry, only to be restored by his repentance and faith in God. The same can happen with you. It's never, never too late to run well and to finish strong. Let's pray. Lord, I know that um, here in this place today, there, well, there's a story behind every face. Lord, for some, Father's Day is not a good event. They're reminded of a dad who was not there for them. They're reminded of a dad who who showed all the wrong things rather than all the right things. For others, Father's Day is difficult because of regrets in their own lives. They wish they would have done better when the kids were younger. They wish they could have been there more. They wish they would have worked a little less. The list goes on and on. But Lord, the, the real key is that we can't change the past. But when we have a relationship with you that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, Lord, you have a way of working 
all of those things that were the worst out for good. And so, Lord, the question is, where do we stand with you? Do we know Jesus through repentance? Have we turned from our sin and placed our faith in Christ? And are we willing through Christ, not in our own strength but in his, to live a life that is yielded, to live a life that is surrendered to him, to say, Lord, wouldn't you just take my life and do with it as you desire? And, Lord, it's that decision that makes us a better spouse and a better parent and a better friend and a better worker, a better man and a better woman. It's when our lives are yielded, surrendered to the person of Jesus. When our mentality is, Lord, you know it all and you've made me who I am. I know that you win in the end and that your love for me far surpasses anything I can imagine. So just do with me what you desire. Lord, when we, there, when we are there, Lord, we're winning. And so, Father, I pray for those who, who look back and there may be some regret there. Lord, I pray that the forgiveness that Jesus offers would cover all of that and just sweep it away. And that today... They drive a stake in the ground and say, my life is going to be surrendered to Jesus. It's going to be yielded. I'm turning from what I've done and who I am. And today I'm going to live for him. And that starting today, they would choose to run well and to finish strong. And if Manasseh shows us nothing else, he shows us that's possible. Lord, he had blown it perhaps like no other. And yet in the end, you restored him because he turned to you. And so bless these decisions, we pray. I pray that broken lives today, God, would be fixed. I pray that you would just heal hurts, the hearts that have been broken and that have suffered from things that have gone on so long ago, and that today new people would be created all over this place as they yield their lives to Christ. And so for those that don't know Jesus, God, give them the courage today to lay down their sin and to surrender themselves to Christ. And for those who know you, I pray they'd walk closer than ever. So Father, use us, I pray. Minister to us where we are. And lead us to make the decisions to help us to be close and to be yielded to you. Thank you for what you'll do, God, in these next moments. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.